0: Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. I'm super excited about the upcoming dinner that we're doing in Phoenix on February 23rd. We've got Chris Harder coming to speak. We've got Ken McElroy coming to speak. We're gonna have an amazing dinner. We're gonna do some work around investing with your values in mind versus value investing. So if you're interested in that dinner, text the word DINNER to 480-531-7519. This is for accredited investors only. Um, Don't worry. We're not going to put you through the whole verification process like you do when you invest with us. But if you're interested in that dinner, text the word dinner to 480-531-7519. Today's show is some broken down clips from the King's Table podcast that is only on YouTube currently, but I'm excited to announce that we have finally decided to bring it to the podcast platforms. We started out, as you guys know, on all of our podcasts. And if you haven't heard The King's Table yet, if you're new to the show, you're new to Investing for Freedom, I welcome you. Give me a thumbs up on YouTube. Uh, go give me a five-star review. I would really appreciate it. Share the message with more people. But The King's Table was something that we launched, uh, myself, Maddie Aitchison, Aaron Amuchastegi, and Ashish Nathu. And it's just been a ton of fun. We launched it on our own podcasts we would record every week, put it on each individual's podcast. And then we moved it over to YouTube um, and decided to try just putting it on YouTube. But the thing that we've realized, and and I had a thought that this was going to happen. But the thing that we realized is people are creatures of habit. They do what they want to do. Listen, I listen to most of my podcasts on the Apple Podcasts, not YouTube. So I completely understand it. And we've decided to bring it back to the podcast platforms. It's going to be its own show. So you won't hear it air here. I might do some clips every once in a while just to get some people over to the show, give you a sampling of what it is like we're going to do today. Um, But I'll let you know this is going to launch next week. Super excited about it. So anyway, let's get into this show. Um, Super excited about bringing the podcast back to all the platforms. I think you guys are going to
1: love it. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala.
0: Well, this is the importance of. I was listening to a podcast with Jim Quick and. You know, he was talking about for every hour that you read or study or go to a mastermind, you need to also have an hour of like, you know, thinking time around that and implementation time. And um, what I was going to say is that this is why masterminds, podcasts, learning, getting in communities like a GoBundance, paying, uh, you know, tax advisors, attorneys. This is why this is so important. And this is what really ultimately at the end of the day separates the successful from the not When I sold my business in 2014, my partner and I had worked out kind of like a soft agreement of what this looked like. And we owned the business together and we owned a bunch of real estate together. And I was going to get a buyout, um, you know, a certain amount up front, certain amount at the end, and then like an amortization. So paid out a certain amount every year. And our attorney mentioned to me, she's like, I just did a big deal with a company that was partially represented here and out of Salt Lake, and they did a thing called the 355 stock exchange. Have you ever heard of that? I was like, no. And she's like, I don't really know much about it either. But I called my uh, CPA at that point in time, a company called ProVision, which I decided, I think in 2011, to spend a shit ton of money on a CPA to help save me taxes. I called them and they're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what that is. And so we were able, in the exit, instead of just doing, you know, kind of like this baseball player did, a buyout over time that's just earned income, we were able to, because I owned 50% of the business and he owned 50% of our real estate portfolio. We were able to trade the stock in the real estate portfolio against the stock in the company and the company was worth more. But then we were, so you can do a one-time like kind exchange. It's called a 355 stock exchange where you exchange shares of a business. And if they're like kind, You could trade 50% of this business for 50% of this business and have zero taxation. So that one comment that my attorney made that sent me to talk to my CPA saved me literally like $3 million of taxes over 10 years. But if, if I didn't have a good attorney and a good CPA and we weren't surrounded by, you know, people like Maddie, I I saw you doing coaching for commercial real, like this is why people pay um, to, to get around communities. And, you know, there's some, I I would venture to say that probably 85% of the population is like, why would you ever pay $50,000 for a mastermind? Because it's going to save me $3 million over the next 10 years. It's crazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The, I would, I would jump in there and just say, that's why people are listening to the King's table podcast. Because, um, yes, I first heard about accelerated depreciation from go I had to pay a lot of money to be in those rooms. I had to participate a lot for it to happen. As soon as I knew about it, I was able to implement it. And part of what our goal and our mission with this podcast through these conversations is we're bringing a little bit of that stuff that we're learning from there. And somebody that's listening right now could end up saving uh, millions in taxes. Last thing on taxes, and I want to kind of jump into some other topics, is something to know about that accelerated depreciation, like what Maddie's talking about. It's federal, not, not state. So he will, he will stop to pay income, state income tax on this stuff. Yeah. But federal, um, you can wipe out your tax bill completely with accelerated depreciation. And my other prediction that we won't know if it's going to come true for seven years is that California is still going to tax him, that he's not going to be able to get around it. Here's a couple of things that happened when I moved out of California, I got audited heavily and they started asking me for phone records. And then they they were like, if you signed any deals while you were in California visiting, we're going to tax you on that deal. So the, so, and if, if the, if the baseball team is still in California at the time, So if you're a California-based business and you pay somebody in Florida, the person in Florida has to pay California income tax on it. So if you make money operating in California, regardless of where you live, they'll get you. So I think he's still going to pay his California income tax unless he does some sort of a stock exchange. If he takes the stock early while it's not worth anything and then sells it when he leaves, like Elon was able to do it. But Elon was able to do it because he moved before his stock gained value. Right. So the when he moved, his stock wasn't worth much when he did the you know, he does some of the exits. So anyway, uh, states like California are the toughest uh, to get out of. And believe it or not, like if you are not a California resident, but you sign the sales document to sell a piece of property while you're in California, they can tax you. They can decide that you made X amount of dollars while you were if you're visiting there, staying in an Airbnb. You never you've only been there two weeks out of your life. You close a deal, make money while you're there. They can tax you. And so um, anyway, my prediction, he's still going to pay California income tax. We'll see. Um, And that he should also start investing in some real estate.
3: Mooch is I saw a headline yesterday that California is going to be it's either it was either 51 or 61 billion dollar shortfall in a deficit at the end of this year. And it's it's sad, right, that we live in this beautiful state that. You know, takes so much of our hard-earned money and does so well with it, and yet we find ourselves
2: in that type of position. It's pretty wild. For California to rescue itself, it needs to go back to the way that it was in the early 2000s where they were very pro-business. They made school nearly free. They got people to go there. They made uh, community colleges nearly free. Universities were nearly free. The idea they were going to educate the heck out of people so they would build these really, really big businesses, and it was pro-business for a long time. And they could lose more money for a while if they stopped taxing businesses as heavily. But The way they've set it up right now is they've encouraged businesses to leave. And so mm-hmm. they would have to take a big risk and collect less taxes for a few years to try to re-promote the state. At one time, it was the biggest in the world the, um, up for as far as like a state would go. So anyway, lots of stuff going on um, tax-wise. Well, Fun little diversion. And the, the, the place up in a t- a Truckee is called Martis Camp. So Martis Camp, one yeah. of the you know, most expensive areas around
0: but Gav- gavin Newsom's going to be our president so pretty soon we're all going to be california
2: yeah the imagine when Ca- when happening. he said when he um makes us have like he's going to be coming in the running i don't know i don't know what month they're going to be replacing him for biden but that was our prediction too and then if uh you know, if, Paul, uh, if if our all in podcast guys are right, Nikki Haley will be running against him. We'll see. We'll see, but I doubt that. Really. All right, let's they jump think, to a couple other think
3: things. Nikki Haley is going to be the primary.
2: No, yeah, that was um, that was the big prediction of the flyer. If you remember listening, um, if you listen to all in at all, like beginning of the year, Where, very beginning that, of the though? year. Um, what's it? Which one of the which one of the guys in the all in all in said it? The with Facebook, I don't. know can I think of his name right now um
3: but he said this was before some of the Shemath. debates have gone on so Shamak, like a year
2: ago when they were guessing who was going to uh, be the the you know Sachs said it was going to be our guy out of Florida DeSantis Sachs said DeSantis is going to be them and Shema said no it's too early he's he's ahead too early what's going to happen is he's going to fall out and Nikki Haley is going to get the nomination he says this like a year ago and the guys make fun of him. They rag on him. No way, Nikki is going to get anything. And Nikki Haley right now has the highest rating. Other like it's it's like Trump, and then DeSantis and Haley are now equal. And the and our boy Vivek has some uh, make uh, has some catching up to do still. So it was just yeah. funny to like as you listen. If you go back and listen to that podcast from a year ago, as he's making that pitch, at the time Nikki Haley had a one percent chance, and now she's at like eleven or twelve. DeSantis is down to eleven or twelve, and Trump is still just taking off.
3: I cannot um, get out of my head. Our boy Vivek just—he go- loves to go in on Nikki Haley, and I'm—I'm I'm gets- all for it. I get my popcorn out and I just sit and look at the screen because he slices her, and dices her in so many different ways. And backs it up with facts. That's what I love about him. You you can you know not like his delivery. You can maybe not even like what's coming out of his mouth, but a lot of what he says, for the most part, is backed up with facts that are pretty hard to argue with. And he is getting on that stage, and between Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, Haley. he likes DeSantis. Him and DeSantis are cool. Like they they've got a mutual understanding, but anybody that is a corrupt you know um, politician that he wants to see get called on the carpet and he has access and resources to information that not a lot of people do and no repercussions for what he says I'm I'm loving it I'm loving it because he is even though it's causing some turmoil within the Republican <laughs> Party which has always been there anyways I think it is the perfect type of disruption that needs to happen right now. Because at the end of the day, unless he gets, you know, tried for something and can actually convicted of something, Trump is coming out as the primary. And so everybody else on that stage needs to get shown for who they are. And because, you know, Trump's going to shake shit up if he gets in there. And so I want to see what kind of um, leadership kind of gets reset in the party as a whole. And Vivek, whether he goes anywhere or not, which I don't think he will, he is doing an amazing job of basically opening up the kimono and showing everything that's going on back there. And I'm all for it.
2: He's making the debates fun to watch. People are posting. So much it. fun. People are people are texting me afterward. They're like, they're like it's uh, you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of memes, a lot of highlight reels out there as he just starts ripping into people um, on their I think it's getting watches. I don't know if he's going too intense and too far. I think he's probably turning some people off with how aggressive he's getting on it, but he is getting noticed. And so it's a strategy that we'll see how it works. It worked for Trump to be like that, but the, Muj, I think, to, his ratings seem to peaked. Uh, I'll pull up the chart. Go ahead and start talking. Yeah. Mooch. Hey,
4: yeah, I think, I think he's saying things that are actually on the minds of people that no one else has the balls to stay on stage. And I think Maddie just said it is like, he's got nothing to lose. He's got his own resources. He's got his own data. And whether you like him or not, that assertiveness is something that I think people want to see out of just ruffling people's feathers. And I think when you go deeper into, you know, what's fun about all these polls, and we've mentioned this before, is these national polls that you're showing on the screen here, they do not reflect what's going on in the youtube comments in the twitter feeds in in the people that are reflecting and having different podcasts and actually there's a lot of different you know when you look at mainstream media it it leans left when you look at podcasts they're all over the place like there are is a broad spectrum of different whether it's conservative or not or liberal and and when you look at the comments that are going on for these social media platforms, whether it's X or people's podcasts, um, or on YouTube, man, people are just like, we love this guy. We want this guy. And it's kind of, in, it's really, really interesting. I mean, less than 10% of people have something critical to say. Yeah. So Here's it's going to be really fun it. to see what happens in January and the, in the Iowa caucus and some of these early elections. Cause I think these polls don't necessarily, I mean, at least, Trump is Trump. I think he's an anomaly, but everyone at the bottom, I think the truth will come out in the next thirty days.
2: I'll run you through you guys through a few polls really quick. But the we're showing on the chart is the it's kind of the uh, it it combines a whole bunch of polls to see where people are at. You can see at the beginning of the year, it was Trump and DeSantis were pretty close, right? Trump had forty five, DeSantis had thirty five percent. DeSantis has continued to fall. Now back in like um, mid August. Um, Vivek was kind of even with the Sanus at like 15%, right? So he had this huge spike was coming in. And I think when we interviewed him right in here in October, he was starting to fall and he was saying like, Hey, I need help now. Now I'm getting some attack because he hit so high and he had lined up with the Sanus. That's when he started to get targeted by the packs and things like that. So then he's been reaching out. And so now he is being very aggressive, but as he's starting to fall and Haley is starting to take off Uh, in there who's now about even with the and and didn't have a big spike. Now, you're right. There's different polls that do different things. There was a poll years ago. um, There's a poll that's always been more accurate than everything else when it comes to Trump. And I remember, uh, I don't know if it was on a podcast or a guy that was speaking to GoBundance about it right before the last election. If you guys remember this. There's a couple poll. There's one poll out there that would take, um, they do it slightly different. And they would say when they were calling people, people weren't necessarily going to say, hey, I'm voting for Trump when there was somebody in the room next to them. Right, So they had this extra stuff that they were doing um, to try to to see where it, where um, what, the, what the concept with it is, oh, is this the right page? so there is a oh, maybe I pulled up the wrong one. So there's one that I've been looking at where you can actually see all the different polls down below to see how it changes um, based on uh, you know because the different polls will have different numbers right so this so in this one uh, Vivek has seven percent you know oh, in this one. Vivek has 6%. This one, he has five and so four. So these are all like different, uh, different polls on some of them and how they compare to each other. So on one of the polls, you know, he's getting a lot higher. So the one where um, it's actually not on, on this page, but uh, I, two weeks ago I looked at, well, who got it right last time? And they had Vivek as high as 10, but they still had Haley higher. So, um, so we'll see that he's who, like, who, we're his who fan. Fills out
4: polls? Who fills out polls?
2: That was one of the other comments is like, is the whole concept of is is polling dead, right? Is polling dead? Yeah. Like,
4: is it a perfect cross-section of the population? Is it really? I mean, I don't get polled. I don't even know how that happens.
0: I think the only time I ever did a a poll, they sent me a letter in the mail and there was a dollar in it and I felt guilty taking the dollar. So I filled out the poll.
2: It's a brilliant (laughs) thing. You should do that when you're trying to buy a house from people, put five bucks in the letters. The um yeah, I mean we can we can judge the polls or not, right? They obviously were wrong back in Hillary Clinton time. Uh they were obviously wrong on that last election, but there was one poll company that's had it right and been the most accurate one.
0: You know, your comment about not having a, a country left that's there's there's a lot of um there's a sense of urgency around that. So I I appreciate that. On that note, too, talking about you know, the 3300 and getting everyday Americans involved. My my audience, our audience is primarily small business owners, real estate investors, or, you know, many of them aspiring to be, and I'll say this first, like I I believe in the free market and everything else and, and would love for the government, you know, not to get too involved, but my question, you know, it's getting harder and harder to compete with large corporations and we look at rising costs, taxes, the healthcare costs, insurance costs, and specifically for, you know, small businesses and the employees, around that. Um, and obviously they you know, their costs rising, uh, wage growth, not keeping up with, um, really the, the cost of inflation and everything else. And, and with your background in business, I'm just curious when we look at all of this, you know, what are some of your ideas to help in these areas and how do you propose to navigate that? Like you were just talking about, you know, the big donors and, and the, the, the behemoth behind all of this, like, how do you navigate through the gauntlet of like career politicians and and try to get agreement around some of these, you know, or or get some bipartisan, bipartisanship in some of
1: this. So my view is I don't even view this through partisan lenses. Not really. I don't think the real divide in this country is between black and white, as the media would teach you to believe. But I don't even think it's between Democrats and Republicans. Hmm. I think it's between I rarely do you hear me just Biden bashing gratuitously or I mean, I mean, I disagree with a lot of what he's done to this country, and I think it's awful, but I don't think that it is productive to sit there and bash one party over another when the Republican Party has plenty of failings within itself. And the real divide in this country, I think, is between an overwhelming majority of Americans who share our national values. Meritocracy, the pursuit of excellence, free speech, open debate, the rule of law, self-governance over aristocracy. These are controversial ideas to some, but most of us in this country share those basic values in common, black, white, red, or blue, it doesn't matter. And then there's this fringe minority that I do think happens to have the Democratic Party in a chokehold, but in terms of people in this country, it's a fringe minority that rejects the founding ideals of our country, that believe that your genetics determine what you can achieve in life, that believe that group quotas are the right way over meritocracy, that censorship's the right way over free speech, that... Anti-Americanism and American apologism is better than American exceptionalism. And I reject that, but that's the real divide, and so I see the prism that way. What I see this campaign as being is really a pro-American movement that's using the Republican Party as a vehicle to advance our agenda, and I do think that being here from a different generation helps. I mean, I'm 38, I'm the youngest person ever to run for US president as a Republican. I'd be the youngest president ever elected if elected. I think we have to reach the next generation with an actual vision of what it means to be an American rather than in the 2023 partisan bickering of tug of war. And, and you know, people wonder, well, why is it that you see such fissures within the Republican Party and within the Democratic Party, but then we're also partisan between Republicans and Democrats? It's a, That's the wrong way to look at this, actually. It's between the managerial class and the everyday citizen. That one, you show up a lot in the Republican Party, the Republican establishment and otherwise. It exists in the Democratic Party. But then mm-hmm. it's this broader anti-American current across our institutions that you know, 10% of the population is somehow professing to represent 50% of the population. And I just don't think that that's true. So that's a long way of saying I am optimistic about uniting this country, but it will take a leader who's not just a partisan hack to actually do it. It's part of the reason that I don't say everything the way that Republican politicians traditionally do, and that gets me in trouble with the Republican establishment. But good news is, at least if the system works as it's supposed to, it's not that establishment that decides who's running the country. It's the voters of this country. And I think that's going to work in our favor.
0: No matter how great we get at hiring or picking mm-hmm. partners or, or any of that, I don't, I don't think it ever ends. Um, and I constantly am just reflecting, I mentioned this on a previous show, but um, GoBundance had a guy on at one point in time, and he was talking about C players, B players, A players, and he only hires A players. But this guy's a multi, multi, multi multi-billionaire, right? And it had me, this was in 2020, and it had me just really thinking about, you know, how many times have I heard that statement of, you know, just hire A players, like you got to hire A players. But what I've realized is like compared to that guy and what he's been through and who he's hired, like, I don't even know if I know what an A player is yet. I don't even know if I'm an A player in that guy's world, right? Like, I don't (laughs) even know if I would, if I would hit the mark as an A player. And so I wanted to just say that to start off with, because I think number one, we have to give ourselves some grace. We have to give our hiring managers grace. Um, The audience needs to give themselves grace because every time we make a bad decision, um, you know, we learn from it. One of my early contractors that I worked for, he always said the only bad decision is indecision. So anyway, I'll preface this by saying that, you know, I've made a ton of mistakes over the years. And I've just found myself thinking like, who do I have to become? It's kind of what you are talking about a few minutes ago, Ash. Like, who do I have to become in order to attract like a true A player? Somebody that, you know, whether it's in finance or, you know, yeah. if you're looking for a chief investment officer or a chief operating officer or whatever it is for your organization, it could just be, you know, a supervisor in the field, whatever. Like, who do you actually have to become in order to attract that person? Who do I have to become? So I've, I've really been thinking about that a lot. Um, the worst, to answer your question, the worst hire I've ever made, um, and I think this will just reinforce my point here. In twenty early, well, it was late twenty seventeen. We went out to market to find a director of operations for our mobile home park um, organization. I think we had about, I think we were at twenty six mobile home park communities at that point in time. I think we had like twenty seven hundred lots, something like that, thirteen different states. Um, mm-hmm. I think we were approaching like a hundred employees. It was just getting to a point where it was way too much for me, and so we went out to market. We hired a recruiter, best of the best in the industry. Of course. Um, Yeah. And they, I mean, they went through their process and they brought us like 30 different candidates. We went through the interview process and we actually ended up hiring. And there's that old statement in business, like everybody that you want to hire in your organization is already working for someone else. If someone's unemployed, I mean, Maybe they just quit a job or whatever because they're, you know, moving on to something else. But for the most part, everybody that you're looking for that you actually want working for you is already working for somebody else. We're not we're not like on the unemployment line. So we go hire a recruiter and we finally narrowed it down to like three candidates. And we ended up picking this guy. I won't mm-hmm. mention his name. It wasn't Aaron Amuchastegui. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up picking this guy that we actually convinced him to leave the company that he was with. And he was with a top 10 owner operator in the manufactured housing space, had a huge resume in the storage facility space. He started out in private equity. We brought him on and I'll tell you what, like eight months later, my company was like, it was like Rome. It was like in shambles, man. It was, it I mean, it was one of the worst experiences I had ever been through. Mm. And this guy, you know, come to find out like it was just a bad culture fit at the end of the day. I don't think he was a bad person. But I think he had, you know, we were a, comparatively a pretty small organization and he just was not a great culture fit. And so I think it was just a lesson for me. And, you know, resumes can be best, pedigrees can be the best. But at the end of the day, you could take somebody that has been part of a hundred million or a billion dollar organization, and they might not be a good fit in a in a hundred million dollar organization if they've been part of a billion dollar one. And, you know, the 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 guy, I think he was also having some serious like family challenges and Um, one of the deals was he had to relocate. And when it came time to relocate, he wouldn't do it. Um, I, I almost lost like three really good employees that two of them are still with me. One of them just like crying. And she's like, you know, I normally wouldn't go around somebody, but this is, you got to know what's going on here. And it's amazing how, and I was still pretty, like really connected to the company too. And I didn't know what was happening. Um, so it was just a ton of lessons. And, and again, I think we have to I think we have to be easy on ourselves we have to learn the lesson but we also have to realize at the end of the day that you know i mean i probably would consider him a c player at this point in time but i honestly thought i was hiring an a player and so Mm -hmm. i think the more we go through this and the more we grow and the more challenges we face in business the more we get to understand like what is truly an a player b player c player um and there's people that we're also going to outgrow as an organization too i mean somebody that is an a player in our organization today might not fit in their role 12 months from now or 36 front months from now because the organization has outgrown them. So I, I think this is a good topic. Um, and I think it's important. Maddie, we lost the
2: sheep with his technology er- errors. He like called it, but what, what would you say? What was your, I mean, I guess the question started is what was your worst hire, right?
3: <laughs> I mean, my worst hire was always around contractors and, you know, just because that was a big world that I was working in um, when I was flipping more volume. Um, But internally on my team, you know, it's usually been some type of leadership role that impacted other people as a result. And I remember, man, this was early in GoBundance when I was hanging with Osborne and he did a little breakout session and he was talking about how it was about hiring and attracting a talent essentially into your organization And he said something that has always kind of struck with me in terms of, and I think this can apply to anybody, when you're thinking about hiring or recruiting or creating a a reason for people to engage with your company, your culture, your brand, is if I came into your business today and I followed you around or the leadership team around, would I promote them, would I demote them, or would I fire them out of the business? And... I think when when people do like that real honest self-reflection of like who the CEO or the leadership team is, it's, it's an interesting thought to think about what level of performance your existing team is at and or if you recruited a really talented individual who came into your organization and they scored each of your individual's would that attract the A player like Mike is talking about? Or would that resonate with maybe a B minus player and they go, oh, I can fit in here, right? So I think that's something that always resonates with me when I think about that as one of my showing up as a person that if somebody of real talent who came into my business would go, damn, like that dude deserves a promotion. Like he's leading this thing into the fire. I wanna be a part of that. Or would he be like, ooh, that guy is really not, you know, playing at the level that I thought he was like, he should probably be playing down there. Shit, that guy needs to get out of the way. Like he's, he's in the way here, right? So I think that was important. And, you know, I did an exercise at a real estate conference seven or eight years ago. And there was a framework and a process they had for how much based on your business, your revenue, the timeline for hiring, all of the people that are involved in that hiring and training and onboarding process, The comp package of when you had to let that person go, potential litigation costs, the disruption in revenue, lost customers. And so they had this formula and this framework, and it was insane to see how expensive and disruptive one, just one bad hire, can be to an organization. And I'm talking depending on your company and your revenue levels, I'm talking at a minimum six figures, if not upwards of seven figures, that one potential bad hire, depending on their level and status that you're bringing them into, could totally fuck your organization up and do such either one irreparable damage or in a very big way, massive drawbacks to your organization. And so it's so critical when you're talking about that hiring and onboarding process to having a clear job description, a clear hiring process for how you vet and go through these things, the slow to hire, quick to fire kind of mindset, and then making sure that you're empowering people when they're onboarded into your organization to actually succeed and excel in what it is that you're asking of them. And then I think obviously the last piece is the addition and elevation of culture through good hires or the deterioration and um you know pullback of culture with bad hires is so important. So for me going through that process myself, it really just reaffirmed on the values of the organization being front and center in most of those discussions. Also the acknowledgement and the elevation of somebody based on alignment with culture and values as well as maybe some course correction or some um some changes need to be made and reparations need to be made based on, you know, misalignment with culture and, and core values. So those have been some of the lessons I learned, but it was just a major emphasis and reminder that one great hire could, you know, you pay him hundred K and they bring in seven figures for you and that's a big win, but one bad hire could also cost you seven figures in the process.
2: Yeah. The, Oh, and, and, and Ashish was back and now he's, and now he's gone for a minute. So I'll drive until he's back all the way. But Matt, you didn't answer the question of who was your worst hire, or if you don't want to answer who, or, or it's tough because there's a bunch of them, what, I like the question better of, because I was at those same things with Osborne, what did your worst hire cost you? Or what was the most a bad hire has ever cost you? Do you know? Did you do some analysis? Um,
3: yeah. Well, easily, what, one that comes to mind was a, a, a contractor, a, a development partner that um, I, I hired and kind of JV'd with, without doing the proper due diligence, rushing into it. It was also kind of uncharted territory for me in a new kind of development realm that I was leaning on that person. Think it cost you. Uh, and I, oh, well on paper, it cost me $280,000. That's what I lost. Yeah. Um, but that's not including all of my manpower. That's not including the salary, you know, people that I had going and participating in those projects with me. That's just what I lost personally on paper. So that was an expensive lesson, you know, to learn on that front.
0: If you've found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.